0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China. Subscribe to our access program and tap directly into our digital newsroom through our Slack channel. Receive discounts on tickets to our conferences and free admission to our live podcasts, plus early access to the podcast. SubChina is a feast of business, political and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kazuhiro and I am in New York this week where I'm joined by the notorious Jin Yumi known in some quarters as Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy of course is editor of SubChina. Yumi, please greet the people. Yo people, how you doing? Uh, so China's sharp power has been the subject of a great deal of discussion within the community of China watchers in the last year or so. Uh, concerns have grown over influence operations or even efforts to interfere in political processes uh, through Chinese embassies, through consulates in Western countries, or or through the work in those countries of the United Front Work Department, uh, which is something Chinese President Xi Jinping infamously described in a speech in 2014 as a magic weapon. So today we are going
1: to focus on the country where the debate over this has perhaps been the loudest and where there is arguably the most at stake. I speak, of course, of Australia. We have seen a heated kerfuffle over the publication of a controversial book by a prominent Australian public intellectual, Clive Hamilton. The investigation into an Australian MP named Sam Dastiari, his resignation in January over his acceptance of donations tied to China, and a couple of dueling open letters issued by scholars of China.
0: So to talk about these issues in Australia and the similar debates that are now happening here in the US, we are delighted to welcome David Brophy, Senior Lecturer in Modern Chinese History at the University of Sydney and a prominent scholar on Xinjiang. David wrote a widely circulated and highly critical review of Clive Hamilton's book, Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia. Uh, he was also the author of one of those open letters, which was signed by dozens of prominent Australian scholars of China. David happens to be here in New York, and we are very glad that he was able to join. David, welcome to Seneca. Hi, Jeremy. Great to be here. We are also joined by Andrew Chubb
1: who is a postdoc fellow this year at the Princeton Harvard China and the World program. Andrew did his doctoral work at the University of Western Australia and you may have heard him on our recent show about nationalist public opinion and China's behavior in the South and East China Seas. Andrew was a signatory to David's open letter too and has involved himself in this debate as well. Andrew welcome back to Seneca. My pleasure thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, so before we get started, I want to point out first that I have made no secret of my my own position on China's influence and interference operations. And, you know, my concerns over what I, I strongly believe has been an overreaction. Uh, my views are very much a matter of public record. Uh, I recognize that uh, with the author of and a signatory to that first open letter, The one that's more critical of the overreaction we haven't invited the other side as it were but i I do want to do our best to represent that side's views dispassionately uh in the course of our conversation and i also want to be sure that our guests talk about you know their own bona fides i mean my by my lights i mean neither of you guys is exactly an apologist Uh, you've you know written a lot of stuff that doesn't exactly toe the party line Uh, in in your academic work. Um, So why don't each of you tell us a bit about your own research. Andrew, why don't you go first and maybe establish some of these critical bona fides?
2: (laughs) Sure. Well, um, as we discussed in the uh, earlier podcasts, I study Chinese public opinion uh, and uh, foreign policy issues related to maritime disputes in particular. And so
0: I think Gee, bona fides. How does that give me bona well, fides? Well, give, I'll give him bona fides. Yeah. He's, not, he's
1: not a panda hugger,
0: okay? No, no. I mean, you're talking about, you know, belligerence, often some quite bellicose behavior, uh, and, uh, you know, China's kind of truculent position on a lot of, of, of maritime disputes. In fact, in, in... I've written about
2: democracy activists. I've written about propaganda strategy uh, written about China's
0: intentions to control the South China Sea. Okay, yeah, yeah absolutely. And then what about you, uh, David? What, what, what you're you're a Xinjiang scholars? So. Yeah, I'm primarily a historian of of Xinjiang, so I deal with some pretty
3: sensitive issues uh, there. I, I first went to Xinjiang in 2002, then I spent a year there in 2003, four. I ended up writing my first book on the, uh, the emergence of a Uyghur national movement uh, in the early 20th century. So it's a story that takes place on both sides of uh, China's border in, in the Northwest and touches on a whole range of issues that are extremely difficult to discuss in, in China today. So I, I don't imagine I'll be appearing on the shelves of uh, Beijing's bookshops uh, anytime soon. But I, you know, alongside that, I do also write, um, you know, commentaries on the situation in Xinjiang and give commentary uh, to the media. Uh, as well so I'm very committed to the um, you know the importance of uh, maintaining our legitimate criticisms of China and, and certainly uh, resisting any effort to uh, to uh, to stifle that um, criticism
1: okay but <laughs> let's talk about Sam Dastiari. what is he alleged to have done and what lessons should the Australian public take away from the scandal he was embroiled in well so there's two aspects to the um the Dastiari scandal
3: as it's uh, as it's unfolded. The first concerns the question of uh, political donations. So uh Sam Dastiari was involved in uh, in soliciting very large donations from some uh some Chinese donors. Uh one of them in particular a Chinese uh, Chinese Australian tr- Australian citizen one whose citizenship application is uh is still pending and you know alongside that he seems to have got uh, himself into a quite uh, intimate relationship with these figures to the to the point he was actually forwarding them his um his private bills for things like laundry uh, and so on which um is certainly um certainly not a good look so initially that was the first thing to come out and and he he took a hit uh, around that the, the second aspect to that was um a story that emerged later um, involving a meeting that he had with one of these uh, one of these gentlemen Huang Xiangmo, uh, in which he is said to have indicated to Huang that, given that it was on the public record that Huang was um, you know a figure of interest for Asia, it might be better if they they leave their phones on the table and, and step outside. And so somehow that came out, and this was blown up into a sort of a, an espionage scandal. And that was, I think, the final straw for for Sam Dastiari. So that's basically the um, the basics of the. Um, There's actually
2: a South China Sea angle to it, too. Oh, really? Um, There was... When the first time Sam Dastyari got demoted, it followed after the revelation of uh, some comments that he made to Chinese media about the South China Sea being China's internal affair. Um, And uh, this... Is this as an MP? As a a senator, yes. Uh, But but specifically to Chinese-language media, he was uh, kind of, you know, feeding... As a certain politician in Australia once said, you know, feeding the chooks, um, so sort of giving the media what they wanted to hear. Um, is, and that
1: the, a, is that an Australian expression, uh,
2: There was a particularly uh, nasty character in 1970s and 80s Queensland politics called Joe Bielki peterson who sort of uh, ran a bit of a police state and at the same time kind of uh, kept on top of the media pretty effectively by feeding them whatever it was that he thought that they wanted to distract attention away from his dodgy regime. Mm.
0: (laughs) So, David, is. I mentioned that you had written a review about Clive Hamilton's book, uh, maybe we should start by talking about the whole controversy over its initial publication and how that was handled. Can you review what happened for our listeners and tell us what the popular telling of this gets right and gets wrong?
3: Yeah so I suppose the first thing I'd I'd like to say is that I'm you know very glad that uh, the publication of this book wasn't uh, wasn't prevented it's very important that we can have all voices participating in this debate and I really hope now that it doesn't attract any kind of uh, any kind of litigation Clive Hamilton did have some difficulty getting this book published. We don't have all the facts available to us, but the story as it's emerged in public is that the, the lawyers at the publishing house, where he usually publishes his work, were hesitant to take on this book uh, immediately. They were continuing to, uh, to look at it, requesting revisions, counselling uh, delay, uh, and Clive Hamilton decided that he wanted to get it out uh, as quickly as possible, so, so he took it. Uh, elsewhere and um, right, so it's not true that's
2: important to underline it's not true that the book was actually censored in australia or prevented from being published it was that the publishing house wanted to take some extra
3: time and they were fearful of what well this the narrative that emerged was that the, this was ultimately a threat from beijing now clive hamilton was was happy to admit that there were no specific threats there may have been some wording in one of the letters from the, the publisher that they worried that some unidentified agents connected to Beijing may have a hand in um, in pursuing the book. Uh, after publication. But reading between the lines, basically what the lawyers were worried about was the fact that there were already defamation cases proceeding through Australian courts arising out of some of the reportage around this, this Chinese influence uh, story throughout 2017. And, and Clive Hamilton's book was largely a compilation of that reportage. So it was, it was predictable that it would contain a number of the same uh, stories. And so it's not that surprising uh, in that case that the lawyers uh, at Allen and Unwood would, would be, uh, you know, would be hesitant. Right, they now, cover
0: their asses as lawyers are trained to do, right? Yeah. I
3: mean, the only way we can assert that there's any connection to Beijing here there is if we if we simply assume that any Chinese-Australian who would take legal action uh, against the book uh, in the aftermath of its publication would be acting as an agent of, of Beijing, and that's precisely the allegation that these people are taking legal action to, to contest.
0: Who had actually taken some of the earlier legal actions against the reportage that you spoke of? Well, there's there's Huang Changmo and and is
2: he, in fact no is is Huang Changmo have a defamation case?
3: Chow Chak Wing definitely does. There have been three
2: cases, and he's
1: another very wealthy, ethnically Chinese Australian with ties to the mainland.
3: Indeed, Chow Chak Wing is one of the donors uh, who had connections to to Sam Dastiari. He's a very uh, very prominent uh, donor and prominent in in public life. There are three cases. Uh, so far, uh, two of them have been settled. Uh, one was a case that Huang Xiaomo took against the Herald Sun against uh, allegations that he was a Chinese spy. Uh, the Herald Sun settled. Uh, they apologized. There was a second case uh, involving one of the uh, the young Chinese women who was who was interviewed for the Four Corners story. That was really at the heart of. Um, this, this story in Maybe the way you should
0: ID that the Four Corners story.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So the um, the Four Corners program aired in I want to say, sometime early in it's the June, second 2017. half of uh, June, June two thousand seventeen. Uh, the title of the program was uh, Power, Power and Influence. Influence. Yeah, Power and Influence. Uh, it was a story that ran the gamut of a series of stories involving quite high-level intrigues uh, in Canberra, stories about uh, Chinese students, stories about uh, protests that had been mobilized for the visits of uh, visiting Chinese dignitaries, and so on. One of the young women who was interviewed for that program who was presented as as having admitted to being an informant essentially for the Chinese embassy among the Chinese student community. Uh, she, she objected very strongly to the, um, the way that that was portrayed and she found a uh, no fee law firm to actually take that up and that case is now settled uh, as well.
2: Right. So one thing I think that's important to point out in terms of the ABC and Fairfax investigations, uh, which did raise some important issues um, regarding Australia's, particularly its domestic political setup, is that the whole thing was kind of framed, introduced by a very cloak and dagger kind of reenactment scene about uh, a raid on a suspected spy and the discovery of, uh, of sensitive documents in the house of uh, a person who, suspected of, who was suspected of spying for uh, China. Uh, and then it proceeded to sort of, as, as David mentioned, run the whole gamut of these various different aspects of Australia's uh, relations with China and the China's uh, influence within Australia, uh, which includes all sorts so, of right. other things uh, which are really quite far removed from spying. And in fact, the insinuation that it is a form of spying, for example, uh, the, the the Chinese student groups or uh, political donations and things like that is, is really quite misleading. and. So the framing, although the, uh, the investigations raised some important issues, uh, I think the framing was a big problem with that. Hmm.
0: Uh, David, with as little normative language as you can manage, what are Clive Hamilton's claims? And then separately, is there anything that he basically gets right? Right. So the
3: claims really run the gamut from very big picture issues. So the, the first chapter essentially claims that, that China has as its ultimate goal reducing Australia to some kind of vassal status, including up to the point of actually making territorial claims on the Australian mainland. that He considers that a distinct possibility in the future. It then runs through a range of different issues that are set within that larger background. This includes a very strong point that comes through as his emphasis on China's success up until this point in in co-opting, subverting, a range of institutions and elite groups through politics, uh, the media. He paints a picture of the Australian elite as essentially pro-Beijing and, uh, and inclined to uh, to sell out the interests of ordinary Australians to further their mutually beneficial relationship with, with China. There's a number of other aspects that he, he touches on in, in terms of China's specific activities to to restrict the free speech of Chinese citizens uh, in Australia, that's a whole nother sphere that's, that, that's worth uh, discussing uh, as well.
2: And he, and he talks at length about this issue of sort of citizen spies, uh, uh, which kind of ties into the whole of society threat that's been
1: talked about here. Christopher, in Ray, Europa, Christopher Ray, the public. Which uh, is the notion that just ordinary Chinese people you have to be suspicious of them because they're uh, informal agents of the Chinese state.
2: Right, and, that, and that's sort of on record there in, in his
3: public testimony. Hmm. This is achieved in, in part by a, a methodology of, of connecting the dots from party through United Front to community organization down to, say, student association, and then just sort of collapsing those links. Uh, so you get to the point where student organizations on campus are simply arms of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, uh, that the student activity therefore has to be seen within the terms of a, a national security threat. There's um, there's various different points at which he, I think, pulls out Chinese actors from a wider context of, of comparable activity, which then allows him to link all these different stories together in a in a and it uh, creates the impression of a systematic, coordinated Chinese campaign to uh, to achieve these these ends. And I think that that is part of the real problem with the book that it's not so much that the the, the stories that he's pointing to or the the facts that he's presenting don't exist, but the way that they've all been framed uh, in terms of this um, this this bigger picture uh, of a concerted Chinese effort. It's to, connected
0: to, dots to create sort of a conspiratorial. And earth. the dots yeah. are real
1: basically well, look, but, t- take, take but the, the has been In the
3: Dastiari case for example I mean the donations are real Sam Dastiari was clearly willing to uh, spout a much more pro-China position on the South China Sea to to solicit these types of of donations. But unless we see that within the wider context of a a political system, which is really awash with money uh, in Australia, that that both parties are very eager to fill their coffers with all sorts of donations, be it from China, be it from domestic uh, lobby groups or so on, then I think we're creating a a distorted picture uh, of the situation there.
0: So I mean, again, there's 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 smoke here, but there's also fire, right? I mean, maybe help us to separate the the two in in, in this Australian context.
1: Yeah, uh, what should Australians be concerned about?
2: Well, uh, one one thing that I'm trying to do uh, in in a, a little project that I've got going at the moment is to really disaggregate all of these different issues that have been strung together under these sweeping labels, such as. Chinese influence operations or uh, United Front work. And really, there there are a lot of them, and they're quite different. They come from different causes. They have different relationships to Australian law, different relationships with, say, democratic values. So, for example, just to run through a few of the, the, the various things that have been brought up in relation to this discussion, we've got espionage, we've got donations to political parties, We've got lobbying and cultivation of ties with politicians. We've got interference with the free speech rights of dissidents and opponents of the Communist Party regime within Australia. We've got control or influence uh, over diaspora media, um, so Chinese language media within Australia, which have been well known to to have become increasingly pro-Beijing over, the, over recent years, as they've been serving a different audience. We've got uh, mainstream Australian English language media cooperation deals. So inserts of China Daily into Fairfax newspapers and ABC content sharing arrangements. The list goes on. We've got overseas students' activism. We've, we've got the vexatious or so-called vexatious defamation problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've got the funding of academic institutions and think tanks. So things like the Australia-China Relations Institute and the Confucius Institutes. We've got academic self-censorship. All of this has been bundled up together under this... You Chinese know,
1: invasion. Uh,
2: uh, well, silent, invasion, silent is, invasion is one way that it's mm. been framed, yes. Mm. Uh, but even you know, in less, maybe, um, alarmist terms, the Fairfax investigation that sort of complemented the ABC investigation that we were mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. before, um, that was headlined, you know, con- contained lots of important investigative journalism in there. But the headline was, you know, China's Operation Australia. Uh, Operation implies that there's a, you know, it, it's, Coordination it's a coordinated action that is directed from Beijing, which when you think about the list of things that are bound up in that discussion, um, that's probably not an accurate way of understanding that sort of a broad-ranging set of issues.
0: At the same time, you can see why it has become so so knotted and how uh, difficult it is for an ordinary person to be able to twist these things well, apart. Well, just
2: to take a couple of examples that, that show you the different causes. I mean, uh, David was mentioning before money in politics. So if it's the case that Australian or American politics is kind of awash with money and that money talks... In, in our you know flawed democratic political systems, uh, then it's that's probably unass. not surprising right. that as China uh, and Chinese citizens have more money, that they will be increasingly engaging in that moneyed political process. Um, that's different from an operation uh, directed from Beijing to you know subvert a uh, uh, Western country sovereignty. Again, uh, if we look at say Chinese students engaging in nationalist uh, challenges to their lecturers, challenging them to, to, to not refer to Taiwan as a country or to demand that um, maps reflect China's view of different territorial disputes. It's not at all clear that the uh, consulate is telling them to do that. And it's, it, it's, it's not something that you can
0: necessarily jump to that conclusion about. Uh, or just something to take, that should be handled at the federal level. It should be maybe something that's, you know, at the level of the institutions themselves. Right, precisely. And and if there is
2: a problem in those examples, the Chinese students expressing their sort of patriotic desire to see Australia's maps corrected, it, it's not in any way contrary to free speech principles. Um, they can make that demand. They can make that request as loudly as they like. The only time that becomes a, a problem to free speech principles is if the university simply Nuttles caves into there, the, yeah. to that sort of demand and doesn't show any regard for standards of academic freedom. I just wanted to point out another example of where the, the, the sort of multiple different causes that are at play in these in these various issues. Um, the defamation action, uh, or the threat of defamation action, um, is very much a result, of, I've been speaking to some lawyers about this, is, they they tell me that there's nothing uh, out of the ordinary about the kind of fear that people of Chinese background or with connections with the the CCP uh, would potentially pursue defamation action. And and Australian
0: um, defamation law is considerably more lax than it is here in the US. Australian defamation to the UK, law. Right? I mean,
2: legal scholars are, are are have a fairly strong consensus that Australia's defamation laws. Uh, have major problems mm-hmm. um, in terms of defences of, uh, of, of, of things being in the public interest and responsible journalism not being adequate to, to allow free speech. But again, that, that's, not, that's not a conspiracy directed from Beijing. That's a deficiency or an outdatedness of a particular aspect of Australian law.
0: Let's talk about the dueling letters, as I've described them, the first written by David here, and signed by, among many others, Andrew, and by our friend Jeremy Barmay. Again, you know, somebody with really... Solid, critical bona fides, I and mean, he's never shirked from heaping criticism on the party. Uh, I mean, starting with your letter, David, what prompted you to write this? And Andrew, what did you find compelling about it that you you know that made you among the first signatories to it?
3: Well, I have to correct you, Kaiser. It was it was more of a collective effort. This this letter, there was a lot of input from um, a variety of, of colleagues because there had been a, a kind of a collective forming of of people who were concerned about the direction that the uh, the debate. Uh, around chinese influence was was going in, so that was really what that letter tried to to distill, but because it was uh, an intervention into a debate around the specific security laws that had been proposed uh, in the wake of this uh, story, we did also uh, want to uh, want to stake out a, a position there. so the letter basically did two things i mean it pointed to the fact that we had serious concerns about the impact on civil liberties. Uh, the ability of scholars in particular to engage in uh, public discourse around questions that touch on Australia's foreign policy and this is the type of thing that journalists have expressed concern about uh, as well and they've actually received some guarantees in the revised legislation that they'll be protected but there's nothing for um nothing for academics uh yet but the second point that we were trying to make in the letter was that we felt parliament would be proceeding under a misapprehension were they to enter into this debate uh, on the assumption that, yes, the, the, the community of China scholars in Australia had consensus that China was this immediate threat to our sovereignty, that we wanted to really indicate that a lot of us had qualms and, and misgivings about various aspects of the debate as it had been conducted, and also the fact that we wanted to caution our politicians uh, as they engage in this debate. We have to be really careful that this doesn't spill over to create fear and um, paranoia towards the Chinese-Australian population. We, Which, really... which Australia has a long history of. A- absolutely. I mean, this this goes back right to our our founding moments. The first act of legislation to be passed by the Australian Federation was, of course, the the White Australia Policy. Yeah. Um, that was the first. I didn't realize so it was the first was, act. You know, it was. A, it was a, oh wow! It was a top. So priority. It was scent, a top, really. top priority um, for the Australian Parliament, and and this is um, you know, this is not to say that people who are Engaging, you know, in the debate from the the other side, uh, in, in any way motivated by nostalgia for those types of um, stains on our on our record, but it's not something that we can brush aside. Uh, it's something that we have to be vigilant towards the whole time, and as well, we have to, um, I think, solicit as wide a range of voices in this debate as we can. We have to make sure that Chinese Australians, in particular, uh, have full freedom and confidence to participate in this debate and and put forward critical viewpoints without feeling that they'll be branded an apologist or a stooge for Beijing uh, and so on and and unfortunately we've seen that type of discourse develop
1: and here too um what about the second letter what do you know about it and its origins and would it be fair to characterize that second letter as more pro-clive hamilton than the one you wrote and signed i think implicitly
2: uh, it sort of took on uh, an interpretation of the first letter that, um, mm, how do I say it? No, I'm
0: uh, not sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what struck me. It does, I is I'm,
2: it really supporting Clive Hamilton? You yeah,
0: I, I'm not the first person to point this out, I'm sure. But it, it strikes me on reading the two letters that, I mean, say for, you know, a few important points. The, the clear purpose of the second was, you know, it's a challenge. It was a rejoinder to the first. But the, the commentary that was surrounding it, not actually included in the second letter, uh, for for instance, by, in the media, by Feng Chongyi, for example. I mean, he, he talks about uh, saying that you were implying that there was racism at work. Uh, I've seen this in a lot of places. But to my reading, the two letters are remarkably similar. They actually make the same sorts of appeals to, you know, the... Uh, openness of, of, of Australian society and...
2: Yeah, and, and I, I actually wrote a piece a few weeks ago um, trying to identify, in fact, just what the disagreements were um, because uh, they are actually a, a lot less than the sort of, uh, re, you know, original letter and then rejoinder that sort of seemed to be correcting the record type of thing uh, that, the, that that kind of setup would, would suggest. Um, one thing that I was able to... Well, I, I, in, that, in that article, I sort of um, distilled it down to sort of four points of disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them being the scope of CCP activities within Australia. So as David was mentioning before, the rolling together or, or the, the connecting of uh, dots uh, uh, that, that range from... All the way from espionage to, say, Uh, student activism and uh, things like that, uh, vexatious defamation claims, whether you roll all of that together into one China's Operation Australia or whether you say that the Communist Party, you know, conducts a range of political activities in Australia, but not all, you know, pro-Beijing, pro-China speech within Australia is necessarily a result of uh, this Beijing-directed United Front Uh, Strategy, So there's a disagreement there in terms of the the, the scope of uh, what is in fact a result of of the Chinese government's um, attempts to exercise its influence abroad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another disagreement is sort of over this question of uh, racism. So the second letter's premises really seem to be that um, the first letter somehow implied that the debate was motivated by racism. And in fact, the point that was made in the first letter was actually that it's the inflammatory and sort of uncareful alarmist language that risks fanning racism at the margins. Not that the people who are engaging in this discourse are racist, right? But rather, it has the effect. Of uh, increasing racism, and there's been evidence of that already within Australia.
0: Not surprising um, at all. Yeah.
2: Not not particularly surprising in in the immediate aftermath of of the kind of storm that that emerged in the middle of last year. Another another disagreement sort of concerned the idea uh, of sovereignty, so and the idea that um, there is a sort of a systematic scheme on the part of the Communist Party to undermine Australia's sovereignty, when I think we can, we can probably all agree that there have been violations of Australian sovereignty in terms of things like, say...
1: Would you, would you consider the, the censorship of the Taiwan fish a violation of sovereignty? Jeremy, um, you want
0: to explain that really quickly? The yeah, I should Taiwan do that. So if,
1: you, if you're if you not aware of it... In, where, well, actually, why don't we get an Australian to explain it? David, <laughs> can you tell us uh, what happened?
3: So as far as I'm aware, it this it took place in Rockhampton, which is in uh, in the north of Queensland. Um, so
1: that we, we can summarize for our readers as... Pretty Australia.
3: remote <laughs> part of Australia yeah. by... Sydney side of standards, anyway. Um, there was a, an artwork being installed uh, in a public space. This was produced by a, a young young girl, very, very young, 11, I think, who's yeah, um, at least uh, her mother background. was Taiwanese. And this was an a, a sort of animal shape, I think some kind of horse, perhaps. And on it were painted various flags. And one of these flags was uh, the Taiwanese flag. And she'd written Taiwan in Chinese characters on it as well. The story then seems to be that the Chinese consul or someone from the consul contacted local government, we don't know exactly what they said, but put pressure on them to deal with this before the opening of some kind of trade fair in, uh, in Queensland at the time, and, and they complied. They, they complied with this, which... Um,
0: they explained their compliance in a, in a sort of strange way too, yeah.
3: Yeah, you said they were bound by Australian foreign policy, I think that was the, although the, I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of, I think, making things up on the run now at the moment. They seem to have been extremely uh, out of their depth uh, in dealing with right. all this, which is often the case, you know, these things arise in places where people are least equipped to um, to deal with them, you know, it's like the business school classrooms on our, on our campuses, and so on. Um, There's clearly no uh, law in Australia that says that uh, every work of uh, public art must comply with Australia's foreign policy on the status of um, particular countries, and I I think it would have been quite... um, you know, quite straightforward for the council to simply tell these people that um, they were barking up the wrong tree and they um, they weren't um, they weren't going to back well, down. That
2: a, effectively, that a year eleven student's drawing of a fish with a flag of of, of the Republic of China on it mm. is not a matter of foreign policy no, anyway. Mm.
0: It does not mm. rise to that. But this is a but good see, example sovereignty, of that sovereignty the sovereignty right. question. And you so had one more, for some people,
2: right. that's a violation of sovereignty that they even asked this council to to do something about this offending flag. Whereas, uh, from my perspective, I would, I, I would not see that as a, as a violation of sovereignty. I would see that as a case of the council failing to... to uphold sovereignty. <laughs> uphold the, the, the civil rights of citizens and artistic freedom. But that's different from a, a, a violation, local of, violation sovereignty. of sovereignty. Absolutely.
0: And the fourth, you see a fourth difference between the two letters.
2: Yeah, so the, the fourth difference of the letter is really the relative emphasis on uh, domestic versus international threats to civil liberties within Australia. The first letter was really, as David mentioned, a response, in fact a submission to the the Parliamentary review of the bills, uh, introduce sweeping changes to Australia's espionage laws, as well as introduce a foreign agents uh, registration system and ban donations from any foreign source to Australian political parties. So the, the first letter regarded that as being a more immediate threat to academic freedoms than the various actions that have been highlighted on the part of the CCP and of Chinese citizens, whereas the second was sort of speaking more in support of getting some legislation through the parliament as a matter of priority. Right. Uh, whereas the, the first letter was sort of saying, well, uh, we need to step back, you know, take a deep breath, uh, disaggregate the issues, and, and consider this carefully so so the second letter was a little more gung-ho I think mm-hmm. on, in terms of yeah, I mean this
0: is this is what I've said on my my argument boils down essentially to you know our interest is to preserve this civic fabric that we hold so dear what is the more pressing threat to it the actual Chinese influence operations or our propensity to overreact to that threat? Precisely, yeah. Right, right, right.
1: So, I mean, I think uh, the three of you at least are all in broad agreement on this. W- what about the China-watching world in Australia? How much of a schism is there uh, on the attitude towards this this
3: issue? I, I think as we've discussed, there's, there's a lot of agreement between these these two letters. And I think that reflects a wider conversation that is, that is taking place across these lines within the Australian China-watching community. I, I think that... One of the reasons that people responded with the letter was this sense that the China-watching community was coming under attack from from loose talk about um, China specialists being um, bought censoring. off, you know, having sold out to, to China. And that, that, I think, is quite a dangerous narrative that's, that's taken hold. And I would hope that whatever side of the debate people come down on, that we can refrain from slinging around accusations of um, apologist, capitulationist, uh, and so on. That that type of language is really corrosive of the um, the collegial relationship that we need. And so far, uh, that's
0: been avoided. Do you think?
3: Yeah, in my experience, it has actually. Well, I've spent the last few months in, in America. In so. the academy,
1: <laughs> among academics, it's been avoided, but perhaps not in. Yeah, the, I think the the media. I think
3: more could be done to um, to generate spaces for the debate to be uh, carried out in person, with opportunities to actually thrash things out with the time necessary. I think it's, you know, the Australian China-watching community is a pretty small and and scattered community, so we don't actually get much chance to to talk about these things face-to-face, but I hope that we can do that. What I'm worried about, though, is that there's a wider political context that may continue to, to stir things up in a negative direction. So the laws that I've, I've been talking about, they haven't actually gone to the Parliament yet for debate and uh, they will they will be debated uh, in the next couple of weeks and given the way that politicians in Australia were very free with accusations about people being a Chinese agent and so on last year I just do worry that we're going to enter another period in which those types of accusations are being uh, are being leveled back and forth and I, you know I really hope that we can avoid that that's one of the reasons we wrote that letter
1: to, to try to preemptively, put a bit of calm in the waters. So both of you have spent a fair bit of time in the United States recently, David and Andrew. Um, What do you think of the, you know, how how different is it? Uh, Are there strong parallels between the situation in the US and uh, Australia? And maybe we can start with the, the nature of Chinese efforts at influence. Are they following the same game plan? How well have these efforts worked and do they pose a real threat? Uh, you know, uh, the different population sizes and economies and level of dependence on China make the situation rather different in Australia compared to the U.S. So, yeah, what do you think? How should we see the similarities mm. and differences?
3: Well, the demographics are quite different. And, of course, the the basic geopolitical context is, of course, quite different. So Australia is a, an American ally, but it's it's located... Uh, in a region where China clearly would like to weaken the American alliance system. And so that's the context in which um, this is being discussed uh, in, in Australia. When you're talking about China and America, you're dealing with the great power rivalry that's that's at the centre uh, of all this. Beyond that, I think all the various issues that have arisen in Australia, I think if you look for them in America, you can find them. And the, the stories are, are starting to, to come out. I think there's a much more concerted campaign around the Confucius Institutes here. That's one thing that I've noticed. There is a very strong push, it seems, to to actually abolish Confucius Institutes in Australia. And we haven't yet reached that point. I think even people uh, who've been extremely critical of Confucius Institutes, and I, I myself don't see it as an ideal model of scholarship on China by any means, but here you've actually have this this strong push, and it's you know it's now being backed up by. Uh, people like Marco Rubio. Um, so it, it really th- it looks as if things are starting to snowball here. There's clearly a lot of symbiosis between the, the discourses. There's been back and forth both. My perspective actually is that it was the talk about Russia in America that actually provided a bit of a template. For a way to talk about Chinese influence in Australia. You had people like James Clapper come to Australia last year. He said what Russia did to America, China is doing to Australia. Hillary Clinton was just out in Australia actually saying the same thing. Then the sort of the story developed in Australia and then it was, in a sense, exported back to America by people coming over here and talking about, you know, Australia is the canary down the coal mine. Right. Um, I think that the, the, the narrative that a lot of people in America have received about Australia has been uh, very much dominated by that um, that alarmist perspective.
0: So I've described Chinese influence operations in the United States, at least, as, as being clumsy and ham-fisted, as being obvious, you know, sort of discernible from a mile away. as Ineffective, in part because of its, you know, inelegance and everything, but also because we have a certain natural immunity to it in a plural society, or we ought to, at least, Uh, you know, illiberal ideas and influences just aren't supposed to take root. Although I I have to wonder whether our immune system has been compromised recently. Uh, But uh, in any case, they're also, and this is what I really want to talk to you: is they're mainly defensive. What it, it isn't like they're trying to undermine epistemic norms or. Uh, Or you know, as the Facebook ads that Russia took out seems to have been, you know, to pit people against one another on the issue of race. There's no effort to do that. It seems, by my lights at least, to be focused on deflecting or diminishing criticism of China, to sort of plowing the field, you you know, for for more acceptance of a PRC narrative. I'm Uh, not sure that necessarily is just uh, defensive. Okay, no, Um, that's what I'm asking. Uh, So where do you see the offense?
2: Well, I think defense and offense uh, obviously depends on what you see as the status quo. Sure. Um, uh, You know, offense being something to change the status quo and defense being something to preserve it.
0: But I mean, defensive Uh, of of China rather than trying to... uh, to, to, to,
2: Defensive of China's image and its reputation and its uh, China story and its narrative. Uh, in an increasingly offensive manner. There have always been people outside of China expressing a range of views uh, about the CCP, uh, about reforms in China, uh, about the way the Chinese foreign policy, the way things that should, should go. And and I do think that there is an increasingly strong effort on the part of the party state to try to shut that down. Um, and so from that perspective, I think uh, I think you could you could certainly say that there's an offensive aspect to it. If you want to frame that overall in a larger kind of idea of, of, of defense of China's image throughout the world, you know, take take that to its logical endpoint, then you, you basically got, uh, you know, China kind of cleansing the world of criticism of China. Still, I think it's
0: qualitatively different than what Russia has been alleged to have been doing. Yes. Uh,
3: I think the anxieties around China and Australia do derive from a very real... Policy dilemma that Australia faces—it's the one that um, people like Hugh White have long been pointing to about the question of maintaining our staunch pro-American foreign policy while being so dependent on on China for our financial prosperity—and that's a very real question. You know, my position is not just that everyone should just calm down; we can just continue. There's no contradiction here. We can um, continue to get rich and be a, an American ally. I think that there's clearly signs that that is. There's a question mark as to how sustainable that will be, and I think that is what's really been the uh, the driving force behind this turn uh, on the part of the Turnbull government towards a more confrontational stance towards China. I think that that is what has led to this new wave of reporting around um, Chinese influence, which doesn't correspond to any actual strong uptick. I think in in Chinese uh, activity, but there is something there for Australians to be uh, to be concerned about and to and to grapple with. My perspective is that, it's, is that it's very dangerous for us to imagine that we can commit to continue to play this role of backing up a heavy military militarized american presence uh, in east asia I, I think that just in the long term that's not viable and that's going to get us into uh, a very messy uh, situation as much as we would like to imagine that we are in there fighting for democracy and, and rule of law or, or things like that actually what history shows is that engaging in a great power rivalry in, in a place like asia means that we're inevitably gonna gonna get our hands dirty right i think we need to you know we need to think about ways to diffuse this conflict before it gets to that point.
1: Um, let's go back to the US. In in May uh, this year, um, there was a Wilson Center, it's a think tank in D.C., and Kaiser spoke at the event and the event was all about you know, Chinese influence operations. A man named Wang Huiyao, who heads a think tank uh, that looks at, among other things, returned students, was originally scheduled to speak. But he dropped out after Senator Marco Rubio went after the Wilson Center for not disclosing that Wang had some affiliation with the United Front Work Department. I mean, it took me a minute on Google to find uh, Wang's affiliation with the United Front. So I, I, I hardly feel the Wilson Center was guilty of, you know, hiding anything, and I thought it was extremely regrettable that the guy didn't show up because I would have liked to hear what he <laughs> he would right. have said. Exactly. Um, but I, you know, I appreciate he was probably in a pretty awful position. Um, what did the two of you make of that situation? He uh, he should have done what? Um, we have a think tank in Australia
3: called Aspie. Um <laughs> and um, they just call themselves independent and, and they get away with it. So um, I think he, he should have just. Um, taken a leaf out of their book. Of course, you know, they are—they um, have close links to um, the Defense Department and um, and other private backers uh, as well. But so the idea that um, someone that has some affiliation to organization that comes within the United Front Work Department that, you know, is a state body, I guess, if that's the standard that we're going to apply, then I think we have a lot of work to do to to clarify who is actually engaging in this debate and and the interests that they represent, I, I'm more than happy with the idea that organisations, institutions uh, have interests that influence the way in which people present themselves in these these discussions and, and so on. Everything I do as a historian is, you know, designed to to train my students to take those uh, factors into account, make allowance for them, and then interpret the information that they're they're presented with. I just think there's been so much emphasis on that side of the debate. People seem at the same time very resistant to discussing the possibility that there are people out there with institutional interests in, uh, in exaggerating the China threat. I think that's also um, an aspect that we have to look at.
2: I think it's also important to add that um, the, I mean, this is, this is one area where scholars will typically, and, and it's, it's very important that uh, China scholars will go to the original Chinese language source materials and look at what the party is saying about these types of issues, look at United Front Work regulations and uh, other, you know, what's on the United Front Work site. That is important. But at the same time, it's really important to bear in mind that being within the target range of United Front Work and doing something that is in accordance with China's interests does not necessarily mean that you are carrying out United Front Work. For example, uh, you know, Chinese students at a, an Australian university who, you know, might, um, say, raise uh, some, kind of, some kind of question, as I mentioned, of, the, of their lecturer. And as they would see it, that's, that's, they're taking patriotic action to, to sort of uphold the, the, the image of the motherland or, or the ancestral land. And that is very much in accordance with the stated goals of United Front Work in, you know, numerous documents uh, that identify Chinese overseas students as being uh, an important target of United Front Work. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing it because of being targeted by United Front Work. So again, it's, it's kind of like I was talking about last uh, podcast about the counterfactual. Okay. Can you be sure that the Chinese students would not have raised patriotic objections to their lecturers if it wasn't for the, the Chinese government uh, policies on, on trying to target overseas students to become you know, more aggressively patriotic overseas. You have to consider uh, whether they did that because the government told them to, or whether in fact it's possible that they had patriotic feelings anyway and that they were going to do that anyway. Because otherwise it gets very dangerous, and, you, and you're, you're sort of looking at a situation where you're going to kind of impute someone's motives and sort of take away their rights to free speech, essentially, uh, in a context like Australia, on the basis of uh, an imputation that their views just align with, uh, or, you know, correlate with, with those of a foreign government. That's, that's right. That's right.
0: So, guys, do you, do you see any evidence that China has... Learned anything from from this experience that uh, the UFWD or any of the or other organs have have backed off appreciably or have you know recalibrated their strategies or their approach, uh, whether in Australia or in the U.S. Um, or maybe that, that they should rethink that. Oh man, they they really clearly have have encountered a pretty substantial obstacle. Do you see that anything's changed?
2: I don't think so. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to just jump in on that and 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 say I don't think so because I think uh, they're uh, the latest incident, for example, over the the, the, the ball with the Taiwan flag fish on it, um, just clearly shows that that um, the the, the uh, cadre's out there who uh, have responsibilities are kind of interpreting their instructions uh, as including continuing to uh, assert China's politically correct positions overseas, doubling down uh, with no. increasing with increasing force, and we've also seen it in the the merging of uh, the overseas Chinese affairs office into right. the United front work department. They're obviously not that afraid of the label United front work being bandied
0: around. You know, this is really, I mean, it's terribly unfortunate, but I think it, so much of this grows out of this, this problem that I mean, I've mean, talked about that in, in the talk that I gave. That we're, there's this terrible incongruence between Chinese ideas of nationality, of civilization, of, of ethnicity, of culture. The borders don't match. There's a lot of spillover. And we're seeing that. I mean, you know, whether you're talking about Stern Hu from a few years ago or people like me, where there's some sort of claim uh, that that China makes on its overseas communities that doesn't comport with our idea of Westphalian nation states. And this is a source of a lot of problems. And. I just don't see China resolving this anytime soon. It's a uh, very unfortunate.
2: Now the expectation is that you know overseas Chinese are only going to increasingly be uh, you know increasingly loyal to the motherland, right?
1: And boycott GAP if they put the wrong thing on their T-shirt. Um, so <laughs> let's. So we're getting towards the end. Maybe we could end with a question about um, where you see things going in Australia from now. Is this rancor likely to increase, and will the rift in the China watching community will it widen? What's your forecast, both of you?
3: Well, as I said, I think that there are you know serious geopolitical questions uh, at the heart of this, and and they're not going away. Um, I think that there is a you know there is a serious debate to be had in Australia um, about our about the viability of uh, the American alliance. I, I, I think that we really need to be looking for ways forward for the Asia-Pacific region that uh, that take us away from the possibility of economic conflict turning into military conflict. This is something that I think Australia could play a positive role in. Current policy settings, though, would seem to indicate that's not the direction that we're heading in. We have um, a prime minister who, uh, who has said that we are... Uh, we have the closest possible military and security relationship the united states and and the labor party there is no there's no serious d- debate about that within the labor party that's
2: all doubling down
3: yeah so in that sense i think that we as china scholars have a role to continue to um To keep up our criticism, our critical role in in society, to sort fact from fiction, to question elements uh, of framing, all at the same time, you know, enacting our responsibility as scholars to defend uh, academic freedom, to defend the ability for everyone in Australia to contribute to this debate. I, I think that we can do that. In fact, I think there are a lot of opportunities here for us to actually take these questions and make Australian society a whole lot better I mean, I'm all for restrictions on political donations. I'm all for, you know, making it harder for cashed up businessmen to uh, restrict the publication of, of books. And so on. all of these things are actually opportunities that we can grasp and, um, you know, improve uh, Australian society for everyone.
0: I'm sure he was going to say cashed up bogans there. for So <laughs> <laughs> my favorite phrase from Australia. Huh? That was great. Uh, you know, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us again. David, great to finally have you on the show. I mean, um, this is And just
1: next one. time, Xinjiang, please. Yes, Xinjiang anyway. next time,
0: absolutely. Uh, before we pack up, let's make some recommendations, and before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Sign up for SubChina access and show your support for Seneca and for the site and for the newsletter. Check out our growing catalogue of podcasts in what we're now calling the Seneca Network. In addition to Caixin Syndicate, we've also got the Pandaily Tech Buzz China with Ray Ma and Yi Ying Liu, uh, who are giving you know, a really quick lowdown on the week's top tech news. Uh, find it all wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, recommendations. Jeremy, why do you kick us off?
1: Okay. I would, uh, as somebody who's never really been interested in martial arts, I was quite surprised to really enjoy a book that I was sent a review copy of called Bruce Lee, A Life. Oh, I it's got that one too. I haven't read that. It's, it's, it's good. Fantastic. Huh? Oh, wow, I mean, wow, wow. You know, all kinds of details that I didn't know that like such as... Bruce, Bruce Lee has got a bit of Jewish blood. Um, <laughs> huh? ah, uh, Bruce um, Leibowitz. <laughs> <laughs> the, the author is Matthew Polly, and it's, you know, even if you're not, I'm not at the faintest bit interested in kung fu movies or Bruce Lee or martial arts, but I, I really, really enjoyed the book, and maybe I will become interested
0: uh, from now on. You know, I mean, just relatedly, uh, Ron Emitter has that new series called Chinese Characters, where he he does sort of Chinese history and 20 Chinese lives. One of them is Bruce Lee. I heard it. It's, you know, it's like 13, 14 minutes long, but it's really good. I mean, I learned a lot from listening to this as well. I had very little knowledge about the man. Fascinating. David, what do you have for us? Well, we didn't get much chance
3: to talk about Xinjiang today, and it it is on my mind a lot because of the, um, the, you know, the, the terrible situation there at the moment. So uh, it's just hot off the press. I haven't even had time to read it fully myself. But there's, recent, there's research out just today uh, by a um, German scholar by the name of Adrian Zenz. Uh, and Ryan Thumb, my friend and colleague, he has a follow-up piece in the New York Times. And this is dealing with the issue now that's on everyone's minds, the, the question of Uyghurs being rounded up and put into uh, re-education uh, what are camps. Re-education yeah. camps? Um, I don't know how much education is going on. Uh, you know, some these are these are camps that people have been thrust into. Most people with no no real idea about how long they're going to be there for. Various types of um, you know routineized political training activities uh, include, and as well as some pretty harsh physical treatment as well. So from from what we can gather, this is something I think everyone who engages with China these days has to be aware of. Everyone who's having conversation about. State of affairs in China today. This is something to bring up. Adrian Zenz has done a really good job of trawling through a lot of information about uh, tendering process to get at Some some of the questions about the scale of this, the numbers of people uh, involved, and uh, apparently some of that information has already been pulled off the internet now. So I guess he must be he must be on to something. So I want to congratulate those guys for for doing that and, and recommend it to everyone. That's
0: that's terrific. Uh, and I do want to remind people that we we talked to an AP reporter named Jerry Shur who uh, did a pretty extensive story about this specific issue, or a series, really, and uh, that was from a few months ago. Yeah, that was we'll, a great we'll make show. make sure put a link yeah. on Thank you. Uh,
1: but we would definitely like to have you back again, yeah. David, to speak yeah. on your major order to focus yeah. rather yeah. than, than my open letters. <laughs> visit Ryan down in
0: Durham while you're do down here. I mean, <laughs> let's, do let's, it. let's let's do it. Uh, we'll come into the cynical South studio and do a recording on this. For sure. Very, very good. Great. Uh, uh, Andrew, what do you have for us?
2: Well, in keeping with the Australian theme, um, I'm going to recommend something released last week by the Lowy Institute called the Asia Power Index.
0: Oh, wow. That was so much fun to play with. It's (laughs)
2: a lot of fun to play with. Um, And I think that's one of the really strong points about it is the way that it actually lets you, um, because at the end end of the day, these types of indices, quantifications of, of intangible things like power, um, are uh, ultimately you know there's a level of arbitrariness to them and uh, so one thing that's really impressive about that is the way that it allows you to play around with the weightings according to your own views of what matters more sure. and less I, w- I also think that um, some of their measures are actually quite interesting um, yeah they actually went to the trouble of uh, checking the Google sort of prominence or the Google Google ability is that the right word the the uh, googledness of each Country, which right. I think is actually a, a really interesting sure. um, and you know potentially very useful index. Not of, a lot
0: of uh, people googling Laos, I uh, guess. Right, 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 precisely. Right, right. Um,
2: and uh, uh, certainly uh, level of uh, levels of, um, kind of prominence in other countries' uh, citizens' minds. Right. Uh, of course, they would need to have done it for uh, by doing instead right, of with, for China, uh, right, Google exactly. in 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 China another one was um visa free uh entry agreements so the mm. uh ability to travel visa free to other countries as being um an a I bet of, that
0: correlates a lot with a, with a lot of other power sort of indices right? yeah i just thought that those strongly. i mean
2: cultural power yeah. is always one of these really amorphous and kind of vague concepts So I was impressed by the way that they um, went about trying to actually get some some handle on it.
0: That's a great recommendation. Yeah, somebody, uh, a a listener actually, uh, sent me a link to that. And and I I spent a good hour just sort of fussing around with it. Tons of fun. That's a great, great recommendation. I want to recommend a book called Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right by uh, a a Berkeley sociologist named Arlie Russell Hochschild. It takes its place alongside a number of books that try to sort of scale the empathy wall and take us into the mind of the, the Trumpist. I mean, in this case, it was pre-Trump is the Tea Party. Trump is a figure in it. You know, he's already launched his candidacy at the time this book starts. And, you know, she, she does extensive interviews with Tea Party activists and with extraordinary folks in a couple of parishes in Louisiana, and. She, she comes in really interested in this one thing. These are places that are so toxic in terms of the, what the oil refineries there have done to the environment, just killed all the, the, the aquatic life in, in the bayous where they're living, uh, where people have just ridiculous rates of cancers, And yet they are dead set against en- environmental regulation. They're anti EPA, they're, they're they they see you know the sort of the tree hugging liberals as the problem, uh, despite having suffered somebody. so much. So she's looking, she starts comes in looking at that inconsistency and sees how it's not really able to surmount the narrative that they have about being in line and waiting their turn, and then the liberal establishment having helped these other people to jump the queue in front of them. Uh, it's really quite powerful, and and as somebody who's always sort of advocated for. Cognitive empathy in thinking about Chinese people. I mean, I think I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't, you know, encourage us to do the same. Although, you know, you often yeah
1: say that Fuck those people. I do. Uh, if I, 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 mean, quote do. I do. I directly. Yeah. Do. So yeah, perhaps you could do with a I could more, use it some uh, cognitive I empathy guess. for the.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Fuck
1: them empathetically, at least. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a more valuable book, I think, than the other one that gets mentioned a lot, which is J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, it's it's this is very good. David Brophy and Andrew Chubb, thank you guys for, so much for, for, for taking the time to, to talk with us about this really, really, really important issue. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Yeah. Uh, David, what's your Twitter handle again, if you want to get people? Uh,
3: I am, on Twitter, I go by Dave Brophy. Okay. I tend to alternate, but on Twitter, I'm Dave, so just Dave slash Brophy. Uh, that's me. Dave underscore, 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 underscore yeah.
0: Brophy. Okay, and then, and Andrew, yours is ZhubuoChubuo. All right. That's correct. Z-H-U-B-O-C-H-U-B-O. Well remembered. Okay, all right, excellent. Uh, and thanks, and we hope to have you back again soon. Jeremy, man, great to see you in New yeah. York over the past and couple uh, of years. And you
1: flying off to Prague tonight. I am so, going uh, to Prague, yeah. Good it'll luck. Be fun.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldkorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News. And don't forget to leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever it is so you go to get your podcast.